Hello and welcome to another edition of the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. As busy producers going through the daily grind of livestock production, we sometimes forget how truly remarkable of an animal sheep really are. Here's a species that can take the basic components of sunshine, water, and grass and turn that into an incredibly high-quality food and fiber for humans. Now, in this podcast, and with a lot of producer resources that are out there, we cover concepts related to improving the health or genetics or management practices of the animal in this chain of events. But today, we're going to focus on those components prior to their transformation to wool and meat. Grazing management. How to most effectively care for, improve, and utilize natural resources and forages for the benefit of animals and ultimately ourselves is a broad topic, but luckily our guest this month is a wealth of knowledge in this diverse area. Dr. Woody Lane, who holds a PhD in animal nutrition from Cornell, is a private grazing consultant in Oregon who works with farmers and ranchers to optimize their pasture management. He's also an author of several books on this topic, and over the next half hour, will help us all reimagine what it means to be sheep producers and successful stewards of the land. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Lane. Well, it's good to be here, Jake. Thank you for asking me. Sure. Now, before we get started, I know our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about your background and your involvement in the sheep industry. (laughs) Well, I've been involved in the sheep industry for longer than I want to admit, (laughs) but uh, actually uh, for for a number of years, I was a sheep extension specialist for the University of Wisconsin uh, back before I moved to Oregon, and uh, I've been writing and working with uh, sheep forever, it seems. I shared sheep and put myself through graduate school shearing sheep, Um, and I thought dairy farming was too hard, so I picked up started to do shearing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah but exactly. I, I, I teach a lot of courses, however, uh, private courses to farmers and ranchers uh, on, on nutrition and sheep production and forage and grazing management. And the uh, ASI Sheep Production Handbook, for example, uh, that has a chapter in there on forages. Uh, it's two parts. One's on range and one's on improved pastures. Uh, John Walker from Texas wrote the part on range and I wrote the part on on. Um, managing and grazing improved pastures. So I've been involved in this uh, uh, for a, a long time, and I'm also in, very much involved nationally. I'm, I'm a certified forage and grassland professional from uh, the American Forage and Grasslands uh, Association uh, con- Council, and I have been president of the Oregon Forage and Grasslands Council. So uh, forages and grazing and sheep have met, have merged into what I do. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to our our discussion today. Now, before we uh, get started, uh, I would like to also start with a question that reveals your philosophy uh, on grazing management in general. Uh, We had a discussion earlier uh, that, and you made clear the point that sheep producers should really think of themselves as grass farmers. Now, can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Uh, in fact, it's very important. And and these, of course, are, are sheep producers who are using grass. Um, a feed yard is a feed yard. <laughs> and right. and uh, so uh, and the uh, grazing uh, uh, part of a, of, a, of a feed yard is uh, rather minimal compared to what we normally do. But in all in all seriousness, um, sheep are very special animals. Uh, more than you even think. I mean, sure, we do it and we, we raise a banner and we say how great it is, but actually it really is. Uh, sheep and cattle, deer, bison, goats are all ruminants. Uh, 
And what ruminants can do are they are exquisitely designed to get nutrition from, from, from forages, and forages are primarily fiber. Cellulose, hemicellulose, your primary things. And humans, and no monogastric animal like a human, like a dog or a pig, has the enzyme, the cellulase, to digest that fiber. And the end result is that's what the rumen's all about. And sheep have a rumen, so they can gain energy uh, and nutrition from fibrous components, which is forages. But more than that, of all the livestock we have, sheep are the only ones. Well, the goats to, to, to do it, but they don't have the same marketing. But as an industry, sheep can take that forage and raise a wonderful animal, the lamb, and sell it within a year. From the time it's born, six to nine, ten months, you can have a finished product on grass, which means that that grass, and I'm talking grass in general, forages and whatever, uh, that grass in general, will it captures sunlight. And you have a sustainable, healthy uh, uh, environment that uh, is able to support our animals and have them to market in a year. Cattle can't do it in a year, not, not on grass, and yet sheep can. And we have this, this, this amazing animal that can, that can produce a high-quality product within a year on sunlight, essentially. So we are capturing sunlight. So working with forages and grazing is a natural outreach or extension of basically finding nutrition for sheep. And that's what I do. And okay. when we say grass farmers, Jake, is what we're doing. And when we're doing that is we are raising forages, which is capturing the sunlight and converting that into human food and wonderful fiber, wool. And we can do that in a sustainable way. Right. Okay. And you alluded to this, but growing grass and then harvesting it with sheep fits into this broader notion of regenerative agriculture. Uh, can you explain what that term is and what are the core components of regenerative agriculture? Well, it's a broad term that's thrown around a lot. And frankly, I don't deal with it very much. I mean, you know, uh, uh, it really, considering what normal farming has been since, uh, you know, since the after World War II and, and fertilizer became cheap because we had all this, all this uh, way of handling nitrogen uh, and turning that into, into commercial, you know, fertilizer. Um the focus has been you add, you know, you plow the land or you disc the land and you plant the seeds and you add more fertilizer and you, all the forage tests are designed. I mean, all the soil tests are designed to see how much nutrients are needed. Um, regenerative agriculture goes beyond that and says, let's focus on the soil. Let's focus on improving the soil capability of being able to have recycling of nutrients within the soil of not taking things off and being and from the soil is our basis for raising everything and someone has, has said that the only reason humans can exist is because of the top six inches of soil and it rains <laughs> uh, yeah. so uh and this and regenerative agriculture focuses basically on the entire holistic thing of of, of, of using soil and then of course the forages and whatever you're growing on it and then on top of that, being able to harvest it and, and, and get the, the results of that through an animal product that can 
be very useful, but also using animals as part of the system to help recycle things on that soil. And so re- I, I don't really know the exact definition of regenerative agriculture. And I really don't care. It's a focus that's really different than it has been. Okay. Well, let's ask it from a different angle then. What are some practices that are not regenerative yet are common uh, under U.S. management styles? Every time you break the soil, plowing and disking. Every time you open up the soil, what happens is when you open up the soil, you get air in there, which is, of course, what we do. Or you and and if you're plowing, you turn it upside down. So you're breaking the entire three-dimensional structure. You're allowing air into the soil, which now you have aerobic uh, 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 microbes that are able to break down the organic matter and they convert that organic matter. And remember, organic matter is made out of carbon, right? They convert that organic matter to CO2, which then, of course, you know where that goes. And so uh, you have that and you have uh, – uh, and every time you break ground, you're breaking up all the, all the, the, the root structure – and not only the root structure, but the fungi, the mycorrhizae fungi network that builds around that root structure, and you destroy it. And you're also destroying the three-dimensional, all the va- all the holes and things, which aren't just holes, but they're places where moisture collects. And 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 and, and so every time, basically, you break break ground, you're doing that. And that is a, you know, it's your basic. If you go to any agronomy course or any extension, you know, you, this is what you have to do to plant. Well. Now, which is one reason why folks are moving towards no-till, no-till uh, um, uh, seeding and cover crops to keep some basic soil uh, health, soil health uh, rules uh, like minimize disturbance and increase plant diversity and keep the soil covered. Which you know, for your standard corn farmer, is a different world. And also for raising animals out on pastures, uh, you know, every year you, you keep on uh, planting new stuff. And there are times when you have to plant stuff. Um, and stuff is a technical term, of course. But, sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, you, of course, you, you plant, and, but you minimize it as opposed to jumping on that tractor and, and having big equipment and, and using that on a regular basis. Okay, Dr. Lane, I would like to ask some questions that I think commonly cross the minds of many sheep producers, uh, particularly when we are about to graze a field or a pasture. How do you predict how much grazable forage is in a pasture? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question, Jake, because uh, it's it's very critical uh, and it opens up a, a, a Pandora's box relative to uh, what we know and what people normally hear versus what I'm going to say. <laughs> Um, so, and this is what I teach in my classes and in workshops and, and, uh, in the courses I I teach. Um, so here's the thing. Let's say you you basically want to know how many, how many days the animals can be out there or how many animals can be out there in some combination of that question. So if you take a look at the normal recommendations on how to manage pastures, you'll see, uh, I don't care if it's, uh, some, a lot of mostly university or extension bulletins or fact sheets or things online. What you'll see is if, uh, put them out there at eight, nine, 10 inches, take them off at two or three or four inches. Uh, the, the inches depends on the species that you're dealing with, the type of pasture, the climate, but it's basically put them on at a certain height, take them off at a certain height. Right. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question. <laughs> uh, if you have a U, in early lactations, and she's carrying twins. I mean, she's 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 milking twins. So that you is let's say in the first thirty days after after lambing, and uh, you. So my question to this is: If you're going to put them out on pasture, how many inches 
of feed is needed to meet the nutrient requirements of that you? I don't know. Well, your an- that answer is precisely the answer everyone gets. And so often when I ask that, I people in the audience look at me and it's like deer in the headlights. Huh? What? You can't. How many inches? Who, who, who feeds by inches? Well, that's just – that actually points out the major discrepancy and disconnect in our entire uh, advisory service because agronomically, we get recommendations on how to man- manage pastures by figuring how many inches are out there how high, and then take them off and win a certain amount. But we don't feed animals that way. We feed animals by having how many pounds do they eat. And every, you know, you make a package of four or five pounds, and then you put all the nutrients in that package. Well, that's a disconnect. And if we can overcome that disconnect, we are able to manage the pastures better. And that's what they've done in New Zealand, Australia, England. The best grazers in the United States do it that way. And I teach it that way. And this is the way I teach it is we look at the amount that's out there. And equate that to what they need to eat and do some calculations accordingly. And you do that basically before you start, before you even open the gate. For example, let's say, for example, you've got 50 ewes. you got a flock of 50 ewes and you got four acres and you're asked that question. How long can I put them out there for? So uh, let's do some calculations uh, quickly. And people can listen to this multiple times if they don't follow it. <laughs> Normally, I use a whiteboard or PowerPoint. But sure. no, whiteboards – I'm well known for my whiteboards. Um, the ewes, let's say, weigh an average of 160 pounds. And uh, let's going to guess they're going to intake uh, and consume about 5% of their body weight. Now, 5% is too high. We know that. But right. these ewes have lambs on their side. Lambs eat something. We're, we're ignoring that, but, but we're adding it to the, to the fixture. Plus, they trample some. So how much forage is going to disappear every day? 5% of 160-pound ewes is 8 pounds. And if you got 50 ewes, that means eight times 50 is 400 pounds. So that flock is going to eat 400 pounds of dry matter a day, roughly. And then you go, you got four acres. How much is out there? That's the critical thing. How much is out there? So we know how to measure things, and I teach that and how to measure them. There's various ways of measuring them. And you end up getting actually a number. Let's say there's 3,000 pounds per acre of dry matter. It's 3,000 pounds an acre, which is, you know, think of a hay field, which has got maybe 35 to 4,000 pounds, 3,500, 4,000. So you know what it looks like. So you got 3,000 pounds, but you're not going to graze all that 3,000 pounds unless you're trying to scalp it. You're right. going to leave some, and that's called residual. How much is left when you get, when you open the gate and the animals leave? So let's say you leave 1,000 pounds. So if you start with 3,000 pounds in a, per acre, I'm talking about, and you leave 1,000 pounds, that leaves 2,000, that's 2,000 pounds between them. 3,000 minus 1,000 is 2,000. 2,000 pounds per acre is what they can eat. And you have four acres. So you got 8,000 pounds of feed out there. And you got 50 ewes, and they're eating 400 pounds a day. And you got 8,000 pounds, and 8,000 pounds divided by 400 is 20 days. So you can put it out there for 20 days. And, and then you can take that 20 days, and you can go to Tahiti for three weeks and then come <laughs> back, and you're, and you're good, right? Well, the thing is, is that maybe it's not so good because – and the reason is not because the animals won't eat that, but because you're going to hurt the plants. And if anyone who's ever spent time watching grass grow, <laughs> and the homework assignment of everyone listening to this is go out there and start watching grass grow. From the time you cut grass, how long does it take before you start to see re- shoots again? This is fertile grass with wa- fertile fertile forage with, with water, enough moisture. Right. Well, it takes four or five days. You'll start to see green shoots. Now, if the animals are still in the paddock, when those green shoots come out, what are they going to eat? They're going to eat those green shoots first, which means they're going to be stressing those plants because those are exactly the type of plants, forages you want, the ones that are trying to come back really fast. And yet you have animals out there that are doing nothing but eating them. 
So therefore, we try to protect our forages because when you come back to a concept of grass farmer, it's not just the animals. It's you're really being very, very careful with your crop, which is grass. Or, and I'm talking grass in general, forages. So the end result is don't have the animals in an area more than five days. Well, what's five days worth of feed? Well, five days worth of feed, if you're eating 400 pounds a day, five days of feed is 2,000 pounds. And I've got 8,000 pounds going back to that original calculation. I got 8,000 pounds of available feed per in that field. So, and it's, it's a four acre field. So therefore I'll set my fence at one acre. That's five days of feed. And then the next five days I move the fence again, et cetera, et cetera. So basically to answer your question, how long should be out there? Some very straightforward, simple calculations and estimates will give me that completely different than how many inches you got out there. It's kind of like this. And I teach this, you get tools. And for example, if, if, uh, if you want to cut up a bunch of apples and it, you can do it with a chainsaw, <laughs> but it's better with a knife. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so when we're dealing with you, you get this thing of lead, you know, um, uh, one of the things that you often see is, uh, eat half, leave half. Yeah. Take half, leave half. Yeah. Take half, leave half, which is, which is not the worst in the world, but that's the chainsaw. Right. What I've described is the knife. That gives you the tool that you can actually make some very good calculations, reasonable calculations. You could be wrong, but you'll see it pretty quickly. You'll see, oh my God, I set the fence too far out or whatever else. Or, gee, there's a lot of extra left over. Or, hmm, there wasn't as much forage out there as I thought. But when you're doing that, you're learning. It's kind of like when you're when you're first learning how to, how to estimate the body condition of a sheep. What do you do? You put your hands on them. And you feel the amount of subcutaneous fat along along uh, on both sides of the uh, both sides of the, uh, the backbone. Well, it takes a little time before you know it's a one or a th- two and a half or or a three, and that's what you're doing with your eyes. You're estimating how much is out there too. So it's it's a learning process. There's nothing wrong with that, but at least we have tools. Whereas if you're dealing with inches, you have no tools. You're just wildly guessing. So that's what I teach, and and it's it's actually. You know, but the thing is, you can do these calculations before you open the gate, right. and you have a fair idea what's going on in that field or pasture. And you can do it with a thousand sheep or fifty sheep. I mean, I, I'm going to get about thirty sheep on my property in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be doing it with thirty sheep and you know, you know, electric fence, you know, netting right. works just fine. And I know farms that do it with five hundred to thousand, fifteen hundred mobs of fifteen hundred sheep. Same thing. So, any case, I hope that answers your question in a, in a general way. It does, and that was a tremendous amount of information. Uh, and it was the answer to my next question was in that previous answer, but I just wanted to ask you to kind of re-go over something. For a lot of newer producers that are out there that maybe have a little chunk of land or, or some property, but don't have sheep or don't have goats or whatever, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what, how many animals do I need, or, or you know, how many uh, goats or, or whatever uh, livestock they choose. Uh, can you just kind of re-go over that as making that connection between I've got this much acreage and how many sheep should I get to, to, to feed this? Well, um, one thing they could do is get the ASI Sheep Production Handbook. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> which has got, got that material in it. Uh, yeah. Also, my book called Capturing Sunlight has that 
has, has my writing in there that described that okay. exact, exact thing, how to do that. Um, and, and so people can learn what to do and how. And there's some actually pretty decent videos on YouTube uh, that, that kind of cover those things. But if you start to think about how much material feed is out there, and then you can back calculate. Because if you figure the animals are going to eat four to five, and some people would say 4%, some people will say 5%, that's a matter of judgment. But do some basic calculations. So if you go, okay, this is producing a certain number of tons of hay per year. Well, tons of hay, of course, is tons of forage. All right. That gives you a certain number of pounds that's produced by that farm. Always equate it back to per acre because it's a lot simpler. Right. You can always you can always multiply back out, but if you deal per acre, because that's how your seeding rates, your fertilizer rates, uh, your yields are all expressed on a per acre basis, and you do it as dry matter. So if you get even X number of tons of hay, if you figure that hay, let's say a ton of hay is two thousand pounds, at least last I looked, and okay. and still uh, it still is okay. Uh, so you got two thousand pounds, but it's not really two thousand pounds of feed. It's you have let's say ten percent moisture, which is <laughs> which is being uh, optimistic, but it's a ten ten percent. So you got eighteen hundred pounds of feed per ton. Using that number, how many tons came off the property from the past? And then do it per acre and you get, okay, this is producing without any additional fertilizer and stuff like that. It's producing this. Okay. If my animals are eating a certain amount, I can back calculate. Uh, they need so much per day or per month or per year. And well, not even per year. If you figure that a normal you eats about three quarters of a ton, 1500 pounds of, of forage per year. That's a rule of thumb that I learned years and years ago. It sure. gives you a you know, ballpark figure and you can do that and then so, okay, what can I carry? And if you're just beginning, don't get a thousand use. <laughs> if you're just – no, in all seriousness, if you're just beginning, get a few, get 15 or 20 at the most and then play with fencing and learn how to Work do it. Work up from there. Yeah. And, and there's no rule that says that you have to do everything right the first time or do it with every, the whole property the first time. Do it with an acre or two acres and let the rest do what it does. And so learn and, and fry all means go to classes that are good and learn how to do it by this way and learn from people who really know what they're talking about. Uh, and um, at least you have a basis to go with. When I teach my classes and courses, I give everyone a warning. I say, you know, after you get through with this class, you'll never pass a pasture and look at it the same way ever again. So, uh, and that's good because every field, every pasture tells a story. And if you, even if it's not your field, but if you can look at it and go, hmm, that's really short of fertility. That's, there's not enough nitrogen there and they're overgrazing it. Uh, right. If you know that, then you'll apply that knowledge to your own field. And that's important. Okay, Dr. Lane, I think this is a, a great segue into the next question I want to ask you. Uh, you know, what are the key components of using sheep within regenerative agriculture, sustainable practices, is this notion of improving pasture quality. Why is it important to improve pasture quality, and how does someone go about using grazing to renovate a pasture? Well, um, that's a very important question, Jake. And uh, 
one which has multiple multiple levels of the answer, but proving pasture quality. And we're not talking about the nutritional value of the grass growing. We're talking right. about the, the ability of the pasture to raise forages. Right. And often you come across the thing as well. Uh, th- this feels worn out, or it's it's not function. It's not working well, which is translates means it's not giving much yield. Um, the reasons for that basically are that the soil doesn't have enough nutrients to support the plants. And it could also be things like compaction and stuff like that as well, which just makes things worse. But usually what happens is you ask the person who owned that property, that, that field, did they make hay on it? And if you're going to, if you make hay on a field and then you take that hay and you haul it away, which almost everybody does. Right. That's why you're making it, right? You're making yeah. hay or baleage or some sort of silage. Yeah. And then you haul it and you put it in the barn and you feed out and around the barn or you sell the hay. So it's gone. I mean, it's literally left the property. Well, that hay contains a lot of nutrients. And the and nutrients, when we're thinking about nutrients, we're talking about plant nutrients. And the big ones are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK, and sulfur to some extent. So if you're hauling it away and you're not putting it back, you're mining the soil. And so if you're mining the soil, you can do that for only so many years before the amount of available nutrients in that soil is dropping, dropping, dropping. Eventually, the plants aren't getting enough nutrients. So uh, you have to add them back. And in order to be able to do that, and the question becomes, how do you even renovate? The first thing you do is take soil tests. And you take soil tests and you learn how to do that. They're not expensive. They're under 15. It should be under $15 a piece. And you really want the main things like NPK or you don't even want the N, but PK, calcium, magnesium. You want the pH. You want a buffer index, which just tells you how much limestone to make. You, you want those type of things. You want the amount of organic matter. You don't need micro minerals for, for, for micronutrients for, for pastures, at least initially. So you do that. And by take and you learn how to take soil tests, so you know how, so you so that little bag that you send into the soil into the lab, those numbers you you can apply that number confidently right. to the fifty acres or twenty acres of your pasture, and so th- there's a little bit of skill involved in learning how to do that. But you take those tests and you can look at those numbers and you go, I need to add thus and so, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now some people and and, and you have to do that. One of which is limestone is usually the case because in the West here, uh, far West in Pacific Northwest where I am, often the pHs are about five. And if you, and someplace in Ohio or Wisconsin, the pH is seven and a half, you go, <laughs> that's great. We would probably give, you know, someone's left arm to get the pH up there. But the end result <laughs> is that at least you have, again, have some numbers to go by and you know what to add or to go, hmm, that's hopeless. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's not try to renovate. And sometimes that's yeah. a, <clears throat> from an economic point of view, that might be a very good, good, good answer. That might right. be the best answer. And you go, let's rent a different field. <laughs> right. um, but then once you get that, then the other thing that people often think is, oh, if I just graze it, that will improve the field. Well, no. Uh-huh. Because what grazing does is it recycles stuff. Nutrients go into one end of the animal and come out the other end. Right. When the field is low in potassium, for example, where is it going to come from? Where are those atoms going to come from? 
you're just recycling things through the animal. Now, in all fairness, the animal or uh, sheep would, would take uh, forage and turn it into fertilizer pellets very nicely, organic yeah. matter. Yeah, that's true. Good euphemism. But you really can tell when something's happening. It's, let's say you have a nice field that's sunny and a nice big field, and you got a tree in one corner. Okay, where do the animals go to bed down? Shade. Under the tree. And what happens is, what happens when the animals stand up? Everyone knows this. And that's been measured. Actually, I, I didn't want to be the graduate student that measured that, but they had to be measured. And over time, what can in a, in a particular field, nutrients actually move from the middle of the field into under the tree. That makes sense, yeah. But the end result is the grazing does not it, by itself improve the pasture very much. It definitely does not add nutrients to it. Right. You add nutrients either by adding something, bringing something on, or, for example, and putting uh, putting legumes in there, clovers, alfalfas, lispidiza, that type of thing, so that legumes will actually bring nitrogen in from the air through their fixation because of the of the of the right the, the, the bacteria on the roots. So the so, but to understand that, and get past the Facebook answers that you often see, yeah. the the two liners to and to take soil tests to recognize what's going on. And then to decide what to apply and how to apply it, when to it. Now, the fact is that some people are organic, so they're, they, they're, they have to jump through a number of hoops of what they can use. Right. The plants don't care. They still need this stuff. And so uh, that in itself is the – this is why we have courses to, to yeah. get into that. And that's all fair. But the idea is if you want to renovate, the first thing you do is take soil tests so you know where you're at. And then you can make decisions from then. And I think this is probably intuitive, but is improving your soil going to directly result in improving the quality of the forage as well? No. <laughs> no, much to no, no. The, the quality of the forage is different than the quality of the soil. I mean, we're talking soil quality. We're talking about the ability to support vegetative growth, which is really what we want. Right. We talk about forage quality or nutritional quality. We're talking about the amount of uh, fiber, uh, uh, crude protein, and whatever else in in the forage. The nutritional quality of the forage is really determined by a combination of the species of the forage and the stage of growth where they are, uh, where in the in the in this in the growth cycle those plants are, and those are pretty predictable. And changing the quality of the soil usually will not change. The plants are going to grow. You'll get more plants, but the but the but but the you know the the change of nutritional value will be the same curve. It just you'll just be much higher in terms of the amounts. We can change the amount of protein in a plant by by adding a lot of nitrogen to the soil. We can do that because what we're measuring really is nitrogen anyway. Um, so you can have a a fourteen percent. Uh, uh, Forages is growing at fourteen percent crude protein. If you put a you know two hundred units of nitrogen on, it'll go to sixteen or seventeen percent. We've done that, depending right. on the plants. That that's a very expensive way of doing that. But on the other hand, improving the soil, if you bring the pH up appropriately, you might be able to grow a lot more legumes. So if you're adding more legumes, you're adding more clovers to the sward to to the actual. You know, the plants are growing, that itself will improve the quality of the forage because now you're adding legumes to it. 
So in, in relative to changing the actual nutritional quality of the individual plants, that's pretty set depending on how early you cut it and whether it's first cut or second cut or third cut. But if you can change the, the composition of the sward to increase the amount of legumes, that changes what the animals are grazing. And that's very important. And you can only do that if you know what you're doing. And, you know, it depends on your pH and it depends on the nutrient, nutrient, uh, the nutrient concentrations in the soil and what's available. And also something that's not often uh, considered is we're learning now, and this comes back to your regenerative agriculture concept, uh-huh. by permanent, I mean, uh, by having perennial pastures, which means they're, they're in there for, for the long haul, at least a couple of years. Right. Um, they could be short-term perennial, but at least they're there. They're, you're, not, right. you're not disking them up every year or something like that. Right. Um, you're allowing, and if, it's, and, and, if you're, and if you're properly doing um, uh, managing that p- field, you're allowing those roots to grow. If you're grazing it properly and allowing those roots to grow, they get deeper. There's a lot more of it. They also the mycorrhizae, which is very very important for, for the plant. Most of the plants that we work with have that. Um, all that becomes in place, so these plants become more resilient to, to, to stresses, and they grow better, and they grow more stuff and longer into the, into the into the season. And you can do that. With, with good management and good nutrition to the plants and then good management in terms of grazing management or cutting management. So all of which is this, when we talked earlier, you asked me about regenerative agriculture, looking at the whole picture like that is what we try to do. I don't call it regenerative agriculture, but right. what, what we're teaching, what I teach is very good, rock solid, scientifically based management. And, and, and we're learning stuff. We didn't know that much about the mycorrhizae 15 years ago. They're not magic. It's they're, they're fungi, but, but they are intertwined. They're symbiotically, there's a couple of different types, but the end result is that it, they increase the plant's ability to get nutrients from the soil, which is a very important thing, which absolutely appears if you go and break the soil up every year. Right. One thing we haven't touched on, though, to this point, what about introduced forages? Uh, introduced forages versus native. Uh, is is one better than the other? Or is that even a question that I should be asking? Well, it's most of the time it's not uh, not as relevant as, uh, you know, if you're dealing with certain federal programs, it's very relevant. Sure. But in terms of, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, 130 acres in Kentucky or Missouri, or Western Oregon, uh, native plants don't yield as much. Uh, they uh, often are C4 grasses, which are which are warm season grasses, which is what the prairies were like, absolutely. Right. But that has a growth patterns that won't necessarily be conducive to the types of forage uh, types of management that we want to do. Uh, I don't work with them very much. Uh, in drier climates, they have absolutely because they have deeper roots. Right. Um, but in general, native plants haven't been, well, the whole seed industry for forages has been built on improving the quality, the, 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 the agronomic quality of different forages. And we've got some really, really good ones now. Right. 
and they're not coming out of universities anymore. The, the it's the it's the it's the uh, those days are gone. The, what's happening is that there are a number of private companies that are producing these things, and there's very very active uh, research going on and genetic research. So to take advantage of that, you have to be able to buy these seeds and use them and know how to manage them. Native plants have a place um, in some situations, but not anything that I've ever worked with. Okay, fair enough. All right, again, touching on or thinking about this concept of desirable versus undesirable pastures, what about weeds? You know, what is a weed and, and how does that fit into grazing management? Well, weeds are simply plants in the wrong plot. So someone who's raising corn does, uh, does, does not want crabgrass in there, okay? Right. <laughs> but crabgrass is actually a really, really good forage, all right? right. So it's just a plant in the wrong spot. But there's a couple of things about weeds. We've got a weed here on the West Coast, um, right along the West Coast, that you do not want. Uh, if, if you know anything about scotch broom, which is a lot of places, it's, it's, it's a legume, it's a bush that can go up to 8 or 10 feet tall, and it's got nice yellow flowers. It's a legume, okay? It, it captures nitrogen, deep green leaves, and sure. it's, a, it's a really weed. But think of scotch broom. We have a plant called gorse, G-O-R-S-E, which is like scotch broom with three-inch thorns. Yeah. That's a weed. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, in all fairness, um, very most weeds are in plants that are opportunistic, and they'll 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 grow where they can. Uh, the reason they can grow is because something's allowing them to grow. Very well managed pastures that are really well grazed and managed well have very few weeds, yeah. because if they're managed well, they're going to be grazed periodically, and they're going to be grazed so that the forages in there are growing back quickly. And weeds are basically plants, most of the plants, when I'm talking weeds, the classic weeds that people get all excited about and want to hit with some sort of nuke, they want to nuke them from something, <laughs> uh, are plants that really don't handle multiple defoliations very well. Oh. And if you can go through there periodically, and I don't mean scalp the land. I mean, you have to leave a residual. But if you leave enough residual, what you're going to get back, residual of good forages, they, what you're doing is you're leaving those solar panels there so that they start to grow right away. They outgrow yep. most weeds. Now, some weeds won't. But also, you figure out, weeds are weeds. If you're out there grazing, it's more green feed. Yep. Often, it's extremely high nutrition. Yep. And after they get grazed a couple of times, they die out and they fade. Great. But they added nutrition. So yep. what, what's – so what? <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't right. care if it's green and growing and nutritious. What's what's the problem? <laughs> right. uh, but uh, that brings up something else though and a very, very important concept. And again, coming back to some numbers. If I have, let's say, a bunch of animals out there. Uh, let's say I've got 20 sheep on three acres. What happens if I have those 20 sheep on a quarter acre? which place where they're going to eat more tendency to great, they'll be able to eat the plants. If you give the, if you give the sheep an opportunity to eat chocolate or Brussels sprouts, right. what do you think they're going to eat? Yeah. All right. And that's what most people do. Right. They have uh, a number of animals out there and they say, well, they don't like the tall fescue. They're leaving the tall fescue or, or they're right. leaving the weeds. Well, the reason they're leaving this, and this, and this has a lot to do with, uh, there's some really classic weeds of, of you know, uh, 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 what do you call it? Grazing, uh, you know, focused grazing where you, where you go in there and try to take the weeds out. Yeah. Targeted grazing. 
Yeah. What we end up doing, though, is stop and start to think about actually how many what animals are out there. And we can actually, instead of saying how many animals per acre, in modern grazing terminology, we don't say that. You can, but it's, that's not very precise because what if I got sheep and you've got goats and my neighbor's got cattle? How do I – how can I talk about – well, we can because there's a concept called stocking density. Now, people have heard about stock uh, stocking rate. Uh-huh. Well, that's animal units per, per – per, uh, animal unit being a cow or five sheep right. and, right. You know, and, 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 and basically how many – animal units per month you can put on there and how many units those are very that's a very broad thing and it's very very useful in range country because that's that that's what you've got that's your paint on etc but that's not very useful in in an improved pasture situation what happens if i'm feeding some extra hay on the pasture what happens if i'm moving different species back and forth well there's different and that's and also animal units has to do with time how many animal units can this place support over the six months or a year whatever and it and it's very useful for real estate growing okay yeah. uh but from a day-to-day point of view what i want to know is the grazing pressure and the way we figure that out is something called stocking density which is very simple you take the pounds of animals per acre period so if i've got one if i got 150 let's say i've got uh, uh 10 200 pound sheep so i've got 2,000 pounds of animal right mm-hmm. i've got 10 200 pound ewes, and I put them on one acre. So I've got a stocking density of 2,000 pounds. Right. But if I have a, if I cut up, put a fence in the middle of that, so they're on a half an acre, so I've, I've, I've got 4,000 pounds. And I put a fence, right. half that, I've got 8,000 pounds. You see, the, the point being, the tighter I can make it, the, the same animals. Right, same amount of animals. But the numbers go up. Mm-hmm. And then stocking density is a very good tool because that tells us basically the grazing pressure. And I found from, for example, from my personal thing, a small place, and I had, you know how to figure out an acre and you got a real small place, you're basically dealing with square feet. Right, <laughs> yeah. And doing the calculation on square foot. But the end result is, you know, using some electro, electronet fence and I can, I can say, I, I can set up my animal uh, um, by fencing. I found that, uh, that uh, the sheep, uh, the ewes that I had would uh, easily take out or graze tall fescue, which is notoriously lower palatability. Right. I get what? a stocking density of fifteen thousand to twenty thousand pounds, and they'll eat because what it does is takes it, they they don't they stop having the choices. If you yeah. give them the choices, they will always eat the best stuff or their favorite stuff. If you tighten up the fencing so that they don't have a choice or less and less of a choice, then in fact, they eat the stuff and, and then weeds being a classic case. So by increasing the stocking density, you get rid of weeds and then you say, well, well, it'll lead to the ground. Well, no, you take them off before they eat to the ground. You leave the residual. Then you come back to where we first started that, that question about when do you, how long can you put animals on there? And, mm-hmm. and knowing the residual, that's one of the basic rules is always protect that amount that you left, that you have left and you do that. Well, Good grazing. Here's, a, you know, you got, I can take out tall fescue of fifteen or twenty thousand pounds. There's a way of improving the the land by seeding. You throw just throwing the seed out on the ground and then having the animals trample it in. You've heard about that. I mean, that's sometimes called a tread in method or hoof and tooth method. Well, the rule of thumb there is you need twenty five or thirty thousand pounds an acre. 
So if you have less than that, the chances of getting a good seed take is very small. If you have at least that, it's a lot better, especially, you know, given the uh, ground. Good management intensive grazing, which MIG, management intensive grazing, is generally running 60 to 100,000 pounds an acre. Now they're moving them all the time. They're moving, right. And we're not talking about multiple moves a day, but we're talking right. about, you know, every few days moving animals. Right. Um, and, and, um, and I and and I know some. And the thing about me using stocking density is you can compare your own grazing to what you used to do over time. Yeah. Oh, I used to do it. I used to have four thousand pounds an acre. Now I'm doing thirty thousand pounds an acre. You can yeah. do it to your neighbors, and they may have cattle, but it makes no difference. Cattle, goats, sheep, chickens don't work real well. But you know, <laughs> but but stocking densities with with you have it's basically when you do stocking densities, you're seeing a photograph that moment. What's out there? The higher the stocking densities, the more chances of the animals eating all the forage that they're going to eat. Right, and then you have to pull them off because the higher the stocking densities means you have to have more skill about knowing when to pull them off. Sure, absolutely. And you've heard the term mob grazing. Some some people talk yep. about mob grazing. Well, that stocking density is over two hundred thousand pounds an acre. Right. And that has, and we discuss this in the forage groups I work with, the discussion groups I work with, with, with sheep producers and cattle producers, uh, the pros and cons about that and what it needs, because that actually comes with a very long rest period in advance. So there's a whole uh-huh. thing about that, about how to use that as a tool. So having stocking density is an extremely important tool. We have, again, coming back to the knife versus the chainsaw. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's a, a numerical tool, but it also tells somebody else where you are in terms of your management. And also says, you, and it comes back to your original question on weeds. If I have well-managed pastures with a high stocking density, so I'm not going to have weeds. Right. Now, yep. I'm not suggesting that the animals eat. If you have a, a bunch of poison hemlock along the side, <laughs> that's not a forage, <laughs> okay? Recognize that there's certain plants you want to get rid of no matter what, <laughs> okay? Uh, unless, of course, if you have that poison hemlock out there and you have a lot of it and you have your animals eat it, you have a much lower uh, a, a much lower expense for, uh, for trucking. I mean, but that's right. not exactly yeah. the point. <laughs> all right? But no, in all fairness, increasing the stocking densities will, and if you know what you're doing, and particularly, you can do that with certain fields and not others. Say you want to clean up a field and you have dry use. Well, you can increase the stocking density to 60,000 pounds, put them out there, and they'll take out the weeds. But they're dry use. You're not trying to milk animals. You're not trying to – and you're not going to put lambs out there. So, you know, we've got different – you've got subflocks. You've got dry use. you got – you know, it depends on, the, on on what you've got, what time of year and all, et cetera, et cetera. But that's part of the skill. Well, yeah. Okay. And again, I want to – ask you more about that point uh, we you know we've been alluding to talking about improving pasture quality and utilization of improved pastures but what about lower quality pastures are those still useful at certain times of year or certain production stages of the sheep um, and and when when would that be well uh, lower quality pa- lower quality meaning nutritional quality Sure. Yeah. I mean, basically, more mature type of, of, of plants that are that uh, you go know, okay. Um, yeah, you have dry use. If you're if you're not on a accelerated lambing program, if you're lambing once a year, uh-huh. that means you got at least fifteen weeks of 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 of, of with the user doing nothing except walking around and jumping fences. 
Okay. <laughs> you can bring them down in condition. In fact, that might be something you actually want to do because if you bring them down in condition, uh, then you can bring them up in condition for flushing by simply opening a gate onto a good field. So you can use that. There's, a, I think, a British term, a British phrase is, is the animals fatten in the eyes of the master. <laughs> well, in England, they didn't use grain. So in order to get animals to market, you really had to know what you're doing in terms of pasture. Well, that's true with us too. And as, as someone I know who's done a lot of work with sheep and wonderful, wonderful grazers, she said, uh, you can hide a lot of mistakes with corn. Yeah. But in terms of of uh, you know, you basically have subflocks. You've got you know your your ewes when they're when they're after they've lambed. You got them with a with a with the lambs. So you got ewes and lambs in early location. But then, if you can wean those lambs, say at sixty days, eighty days, whatever, then the lambs are high. They have high nutrient needs, and you put them on your absolute best pastures, etc. Clover pasture, straight alfalfa. What do you ever want to do? And those ewes, you dry them off, and you put them on place you want to uh, high stocking densities with older pastures and you want to clean it up. Or if you want to renovate a pasture, for example, you want to eat it into the ground because you want to prepare it to do something in the future. So you can use, you know, dry use are extremely valuable as a pasture management tool. Uh, it always depends on what you want from those animals. If you don't want to you know, it's obviously, if you got ewes in late in, in, in who are uh, you know in or who are in gestation, if they're carrying lambs, um, you're not going to screw around with the nutrition on those. You're not going to put them on old stuff. Right. Yeah. So there's a few different ways, but but it's basically that's coming down to the nutritional needs of the animal, and and within a flock, there's subflocks. There's uh, the thing that overcomes that. Are accelerated lambing, and I know you've had, you know, Richard was on for accelerated lambing, and that changes things because it takes out the maintenance period, because the animals always have to be back. They're either they're, they become cattle in the sense that they're always pregnant or, or lactating or both. And so, uh, but but given once a year lambing, those ewes have uh, tremendous. You have lots of opportunities to put them in different places depending on what their nutritional needs are. And rams, of course, are rams. So, you you know, presumably you don't have hundreds of them. But the end result is what you end up having is you, you treat – and the rams are, are a separate flock, if you will, a sub-flock. And you can – you know, they don't need the best of feed until they need some feed before 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 you put them in with the with, – and, and when they're doing their work with the ewes. Right. Again, different fields, different paddocks, and, you know, you can always rent a paddock. <laughs> if you have fenced, you can find someone else's paddock to use if you need to. Sure. Okay, and this is a, a sheep podcast, obviously, but many of our listeners uh, have multi-species operations. Before, without going, you know, this could be a probably a podcast all in and itself. But can you just give us some some general do's and don'ts about multi-species grazing? Well, I would not mix sheep and elephants in the same pasture. Oh. Good advice. <laughs> Anything else you need? No, it's all serious. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Now the um, the uh, uh, multi-species has a couple of different meanings. Do you now? And it depends on the situation. Some people use multi-species where you have sheep and cattle for classic, or sheep and goats, right, yeah. or all three in the same place at the same time, versus different herds and flocks. There's a you got yeah. some cattle, you got some sheep, 
and you're moving them around separately on the operation or you're bringing someone else's cattle in and whatever. So you got multiple species on the planet. Those are different. But either way, one rule to my mind is always in place. Five-day rule. I don't want animals on a place more than five days. Now, this is assuming I'm moving them around. If you, you set stocking where they're out there, well, that's a whole different world. You're over, you're over, when you're set stocking, you're overgrazing and undergrazing at the same time. Mm-hmm. You're overgrazing the best pasture, your best, best, best forages, and you're undergrazing the stuff that the animals don't want. Right. All right. That's out of your control. And, and that's where a lot of people have their weed problem and all that type of stuff. But if you're moving animals around, and you have fencing. The five-day rule is exceptionally important. So I can have sheep and cattle and cattle and sheep. That's a classic one where you put horses and, and sheep. Um, but I don't want anything in that paddock or in that grazing area, that grazing cell, more than five days. Yeah, so that's not five days of sheep plus five days of cattle. Correct. Plus five that's days five days of animals. Five days of animals are going to eat my grass. And I don't want, I want that grass to start growing again the moment they come off it. Now, the advantages, however, of, of, I mean, that doesn't mean that you can't put sheep in there for three days and cattle in there for three days. You could do that. I mean, that's fine. And there's a lot of the uh, academic uh, names for, you know, uh, put and and take grazing, uh, forward grazing, creep grazing, all that type of stuff. That's fine and dandy. As a grass farmer, uh-huh. I don't want animals in there more than five days. Now, I want uh, what sequence of animals go in. That's fine. That's perfectly good. But I want them all off the field of, of that paddock in five days. Now, there's some very, very good things about having multiple grazing, multiple species. I mean, they have different uh, different parasite uh, loads, different species. So you can use sure. one species to vacuum the field of larva so the next species will be less infected or infested and that's very true between cattle and sheep and certainly between horses and chickens you know poultry poultry do a great job of preparing a pasture for sheep or vice versa so yeah multi-species grazing is can be very good but also remember if you're a grass farmer you have to deal with the fact that's your crop and, and, and by having, if you do multi-species grazing wrongly, you're going to overgraze your crop. Right. So there's good points. There's very good points in it, but it is a bit tricky. Uh, but it's perfectly doable in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. Right. Good advice for lots of things. All right, Dr. Link, this has been a, a wealth of information. Uh, and, you know, I know we probably didn't get to everything that even you wanted to, to touch on, but... Uh, However, I always try to ask uh, our speakers to pick one key idea or concept from the discussion that we had today uh, that you would like to leave our listeners with. What what would be the one take-home message you wish that everyone would have? If you're going to do grazing and you really want to do a good job of it, remember that you're a grass farmer. And what you're doing is you're converting, you're capturing the, the, the... that forage is capturing sunlight and you're converting that sunlight into sheep. And what you're trying to do the most is do it in the most economic. You're running a business. So you have to do it in an economic and sustainable way. 
and being a grass farmer and capturing that sunlight and being able to convert that sunlight into high quality food for for humans and high quality fiber wool there's nothing like it in the world and we can do that on a sustainable basis and we can do it better than anyone else because we can get our animals to market within a year and to be able to do that and we can defend that we can take land that should never have been plowed and we can make human food from that in a sustainable way and i think we can defend that and we can point to it and with great pride because we're doing something that is an absolutely great service to everyone and we can do it in a sustainable way but we need to know what we're doing and how we're doing it and being a grass farmer with sheep is to my mind the epitome of good farming and management great great advice uh now lastly sheep folks and, and our listeners are always looking to learn more uh where's what are some resources you would suggest to producers uh, including the asi handbook uh where they could go and, and learn more about the stuff you discussed today well the the asi sheep production handbook is a very you know it's it's good scientifically based stuff i mean it's the this the reference. It is a reference book you put on your thing. It's not, I mean, it's, you don't want to carry around in a day pack because you, 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 yeah. you'd hurt your shoulder. You're but still, muscle building. Yeah. Um, uh, well, they you know they, they do have a thumb drive, so you could do that. Uh, read my book. Yeah, read my book. I mean, it's uh, I, I've written and I write still for the Shepherd magazine, and uh, uh, my articles are in the Shepherd, and my book uh, on capturing sunlight is a. Uh, uh, it's uh, more than 60 of my articles, as well as a whole, the whole chapter from the ASI handbook is all in there. Uh, and uh, as someone once said, it's because these, these chapters are short, you know, they're, they're, they're rewritten magazine articles. And then one person said that that's the best bathroom reading they've ever had. <laughs> Everyone knows what that means, but I don't know how mm-hmm. to use that in a marketing phrase. But the end result is, is uh, those are good. Very good points. Uh, books by Sarah Slack on, on her book on, on grazing uh, is good. Uh, Jim Garrish has got a c- couple of books out there. Uh, uh, I guess Sarah's book and my book and uh, my books and uh, Jim Garrish's books and um, uh, Green, Greener Pastures on Your Side of the uh, on Your Side of the Fence is a is a wonderful book as well. Okay, Bill Murphy's book. So those would be really good things to start. Um, Gabe Brown has got some videos out there and he's turned uh, some folks, he's turned uh, some overused, poorly done fields and and farms into a masterful, a masterful uh, uh, conversion. He runs cattle, but the principles are the same. Sure. So there are some good things to go to. There's, there's a lot of other stuff that's being sold that go, well, yeah, so what? But uh, I'm, I'm trying to give you, good if you start from scratch and you and you went and looked at read those things um those would be things and if you could find any classes courses given by really good people and they're not that common but if you can that changes that changes your outlook and changes where you where the amount of information that you the tools it gives you the tools to work with and you feel confident about it sure excellent 
Well, I hate to say it, but we're about out of time. But Dr. Lane, thank you very, very much for joining us today. This was a, a wonderful discussion. I know this is going to be a, a real hit uh, amongst our listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Jake, for asking me. It's been a pleasure and pleasure working with you. Sure. Well, folks, uh, as I said, that about does it for time. Um, but, uh, you know, Dr. Lane left us with a tremendous amount to ponder. Hopefully that satiates you until next month uh, when we'll be back again. Uh, but until then, remember, eat lamb, wear wool. But also remember, those two products are only as good as the grasses they eat. Have a nice rest of your day. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>